When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of The Career Musician, we have Jordan Siegel. Whether he's scoring projects for film and TV or performing and improvising before audiences on stage around the world, Jordan approaches every pursuit with the same mission in mind, to create music that truly moves people. And trust me, he does just that with credits like Ant-Man and the Wasp, Lego Movie 2, Trolls, Empire, Glee, The X Factor, The Morning Show, Deadwood the Movie, Penny Dreadful, Snoopy in Space, Peter Erskine, Jeff Hamilton, Graham Detcher, Common, and of course, Babyface, which is how we met while working with the National Symphony Orchestra's concerts at the Kennedy Center. Jordan understands the importance of keeping a versatile career while going from jazz, R&B, to the big screen and everything in between. Check him out right here on the Career Musician Podcast. Jordan Siegel, composer, pianist, writer of music, and all things above. Welcome to the Career Musician Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, okay, much like uh, many of the people on the Tim Davies team, <laughs> we met doing the Babyface concert at the Kennedy Center with the National Symphony Orchestra. Actually, we met before that doing rehearsals. So, and, and, and I'm going to tell the story again, just like I told oh, yeah. you, I love <laughs> Jeremy. <it. laughs> we, we came into the first week of pre-production rehearsals or production rehearsals at Center Staging and our keyboard player got sick. Remember that? I remember. Yes, I remember. And, I was, and I was there. I was actually there just to help out with the orchestration arranging side of things to to help with either like a digital performer problem or something unrelated to yes. piano anyway. I happened to be in the room. You happen to be in the room. And I'm like, wait a minute. You wrote the charts on these guys. You could sit down at the piano and knock some of them out, right? <laughs> it, felt, it felt like a movie moment. It was just like, hey, our keyboard is gone. Can anybody do this? And like, you know, you look to everyone, you look to the janitor, you look at whatever, like, yeah, I can do that. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was, it was great. That was awesome, man. Good stuff. Good times. Good memories, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, okay. How long have you been in LA? And originally, where are you from? I'm from LA. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. You're, you're a rarity. I'm a rarity, yeah. So you're I'm like, from uh You're like the yeah. yellow-bellied speckled red jay. <laughs> I know. There, we're out there. Yeah, we're out there. Man. Okay, cool. What part of LA did you grow up in? Uh Wessex Village. Okay. You know yeah. Yeah, and now you're in the valley. You, you now know. I'm in the valley, yes. Yeah. All right. So you've been in the scene since day 1. Uh, and one of the questions I always like to ask to, you know, kind of get started here and break the ice with our listeners and our guests, uh, how did the music bug bite you? Um, well, my dad uh, played piano just for fun, never professionally. And so from the time, you know, I was three, four, five years old, I would play piano with him and then uh, eventually started lessons. But it wasn't until high school when I was in the jazz band um, that I just fell in love with it and knew that I want to do something in music. I didn't know what that was. Um, I loved jazz and I went to Berkeley College um, at first for jazz, but kind of decided, you know, this lifestyle of what I see the jazz musician lifestyle was not what I wanted. And so then 
well, what could I do that still I would love? And, and it became film scoring. And I, at first it was like, Oh, like this looks fun. And then I caught that bug, which was like, Oh man, mm-hmm. making, making music that really moves people when they're watching, you know, whatever it is, a Pixar film or a Spielberg film, like that music is making them cry. And that, that's a very powerful, um, fun, fun thing to work on. It really is. I'll never forget one of my mentors many years ago uh, taught me. We were actually having some downtime. We were watching a movie, a scary movie. <laughs> I remember this so vividly. And he said, hey, do an experiment. Mute the sound for a minute. And and I mute it. And I know this story, of course. Everybody says the same thing. But, you know, you mute the sound. And you're like, look, you're not scared, right? I'm like, wow, I'm really not. The suspense is gone. And then he's like, okay, now unmute it. And then all of a sudden, you're scared again. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's funny also being on the other side of it where you're composing for it. Yeah. And, you know, you watch a film and you're like, you're scoring this. Like, guys, I don't know if this is going to be scary. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you put in your ominous drone pad and your few right. hits. But, uh, yeah, it's fun to watch it with the green screen and the special effects and and the stuff where it's really not looking that scary, but you know, okay, this is in the end, it will be scary. As they say, we'll fix it in post, right? Exactly. <laughs> Have you ever had this happen where you're working late at night in the studio on, on a, on a horror picture and you scare yourself while you're scoring it? Cause it's so eerie. <laughs> it, it does get a little spooky. Yeah. It is right? like, I don't like to work on it late at night. Cause right. I'm just like, I'm not going to sleep that well after just, coming up with yeah i know dis- right lots of dissonant music yeah yeah and all those little weird sound design elements and stuff exactly so okay so cool so you went to berkeley so you went out you went out east up to boston yes and then you came back i did and then when you got back here did you just you know something that i like to kind of uh uh you know distill and break down for our listeners is how you made it happen quote unquote when i say it meaning you know your career the major steps in your career so you go out there you get your degree you had some jazz performance but also film scoring you come back to la you say okay i'm here hire me like you know talk about that what was that trajectory like what was that process it's tough and like yeah it's it's hard to to understand what that path will be for anybody. Cause everybody's different for me. Um, I was open to playing. I was open to doing orchestration. I was open to doing composing, but there's nowhere just you go to like, okay, cool. I'm ready to hire me. There's no list. There's no, uh, there actually, I did, I did get gigs. If you can believe it through Craigslist back in the day, Wow. Like back in 2010, I actually with a, with a person that I still play with every once in a while. It was actually a great, a great recurring gig that happened through Craigslist, um, different times. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it was random, random things. I played in rehearsal bands, which is a weird thing in LA where mm-hmm. you play music for free and you try and make connections. And I did meet connections through that. I met a bass player whose wife was a contractor and um, that got me onto Glee. So I, I was doing on-camera piano work for Glee. Wow. And so that was a nice way to make some money and not feel pressure to get, you know, a, a job that out, outside of music, you know, something like that, that you can still work on your reel. You can still work on making connections and not have that pressure to, to earn, you know, a salary through some other non-music job. That's perfect. Um, let's, if you don't mind, let's park there for a second, um, because you're, you know, the umpteenth person who's mentioned uh, rehearsals here in LA. It's a, it's a very particular way 
to get connected, like you said. And I, I kind of want to break that down again for the listeners. So out here with Local 47, the union, uh, you know, a lot of musicians and bands, they rent out the rehearsal rooms at the union and they just rehearse. Oftentimes, uh, from my understanding, I've done a couple of them, but I haven't been immersed in that scene. Oftentimes, they're doing it for a particular uh, band that they have already in place and you're subbing out, you're subbing for a person who couldn't make it or even times I know they just get together and jam for fun, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's everything. Yeah, there's people that are doing just individual jam sessions, but there are weekly big bands that rehearse. Right. Um, so I was part of some of them and then also subbing in others. And yeah, you, you meet players through that. And then I went to Jakarta for a jazz festival through that. Um, the so Java yeah, Jazz Fest. The Java Jazz Fest. Yes, I've I've played that at least five times. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's a crazy one. <laughs> it is. It's fun. It's a, it's a it's quite the trek. Yeah, it's quite the trek. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So I mean, stuff happened through that. I I feel like I still feel like this to this day that it was a lot of planting seeds. It was a lot of like, okay, you meet this person, you meet this person, and you never know which one's going to lead to anything, but you. You try and be a good person. You try to be nice. You try to be responsible. You try to, you know, hone your craft so that hopefully one of those seeds, like, hey, like we just got this thing that come up, came up. You know, what do you what do you think about this? So um, there was that. There was stuff from college um, connections too. I uh, I was able to do the X Factor for for most of those. It was like three or four years of that, I think, um, as a rehearsal pianist, and that was just through a college a college buddy who was like, hey, they need a pianist for X Factor. Like great, um, so yeah. stuff like that. Just show up yeah. and play. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. It's a, it's very important to be able to just perform at you know at will, right? Yeah, and play uh, anything that's asked of you. Yeah, and to have a specific skill set, you know, within reason. I think mm -hmm. there's a balance between being versatile and being able to do everything possible, where you're not going to be really able to hone in on what you do well or what you're passionate about. But also, there's a specific baseline of, I think, requirements that you want to call yourself a professional musician, you should be able to do A, B, and C. And so for me, um, and, that, and part of it is learning on the job, you know, for that show, I was basically, I would have to do a takedown of the song that we were working on, some pop song that I maybe had heard or maybe hadn't, you know, while they're talking, maybe five, ten, five, ten minutes, you have, cool, learn this tune, get the arrangement down, and you just put on headphones while they're talking, like, cool, you got it? And you're like, yeah. And then you play it and maybe you got it. And then, okay, cool. We actually don't like that key, change a key. And so that skill of being able to learn a tune really fast and change keys just at will um, for, you know, relatively simple pop songs um, is, is just a really important skill. Man, and let's park there for a second. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, you're hitting all the important points here. For those who don't know, a takedown means that you're going to listen to a song and you're going to write a chart, basically. Um, so I, I love the fact that you just described what it's like because the producer, the artist, and some executives are usually talking and chatting about while you're sitting there trying to figure out the song. And, yeah. and that is so true to real life. That's how it works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so get really good at being able to transcribe on the spot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really important. And I'm, I'm astonished how that has been such a big part of so many projects. Like I thought, oh, that's a college thing. Oh, it's tedious. You're doing it to learn. But no, there's so many projects every year. It's happening right now, either for me or for, for Tim Davies, who is our, our mutual friend um, and colleague. 
um, where, yeah, there's a, Hey, there's a tune and they want arrangement. Well, you got to take it down first. Yeah. Um, or there's, Hey, we need a song that's really similar to this one. Well, it might be a good idea to, to take down, you know, enough so you know what's there and what to avoid and what you can possibly borrow from. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how much sound alikes and takedowns are such a big part of the industry now. So true. Talk about your process there. Do you like to now in the digital domain, do you like to just have an iPad on hand with, you know, four score the app or, or do you like to write it out, you know, on staff paper or whatnot? Or? Um, I, I like to do it straight into the notation program. We use, uh, I use Finale. Great. And, um, yeah, it's mostly, I mean, sometimes I just learn it first. If it's simple enough, mm -hmm. I'll just learn it um, on the piano and then later makes chart of it. If it's really simple, yeah, I'll just probably notate the chords on a, just a blank paper. Okay. But uh, if it's, yeah, if it's a, something more serious then yeah, it just goes straight into the notation program. So you're usually, uh, you know, running around town with your laptop in hand. If, yeah. If I have to. Yeah. I mean, for the X factor thing, that was just get it, get it in your head. Um, no, even not even time to chart it out. I mean, if it was charting out, it was just on a paper. Yeah. Not even into a yeah, notation program. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, so tell us what keeps you busy. Like, I know you're, you know, arranger, orchestrator. Uh, obviously, you have great transcription skills as well. Uh, and you're a fantastic piano player. Uh, you know, what is it? Is it a, a combination of all these different things? Or do you find yourself, you know, focusing on one thing at a time lately? Yeah, I, fortunately, I'm, I'm able to kind of balance all the worlds. It's been really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, between... Composing, I do a lot of composing. And, for and a composer, and, yes. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and uh, additional music for other composers. So it really depends on the month. And that's, it's great because I love doing all the three different things. I get a different fulfillment and satisfaction from each one. Mm -hmm. But it's also challenging in that you, you want to feel like you're excelling and, and you're honing your craft in all those fields. But 
there always might be people that say, oh, he's just a composer who's trying to be an orchestrator. Oh, he's just a pianist who's trying to be a composer. Like what you, you can get the pessimistic view. So it's really important, I think, to just to work on it. And if and again, I'm passionate about all those things. So I, I think it's still important for me to try and balance all of them. So, right. Yeah, it really just depends on the month. <laughs> uh, that, well said, well said. Uh, speaking of that, do you have any kind of you know mantras that help you through it or scheduling uh tactics that help you figure out okay you know what as long as i do xyz every day i'm going to be able to get through my day successfully or get through my week yeah I, I think um it's pretty it's pretty basic time management skills for me is no notifications like that's that's the most recent thing that i found is the most helpful just when it's time to do your work whether that's compose or orchestrate and you know you need to get let's say three minutes of music done in a day for I, i'll go you know hour and a half no notifications don't bother me because otherwise especially composing i find it's really hard for me to to be productive if i'm like checking emails or somebody's texting you and um i find it's really helpful just to set those times and then yeah set mini goals you know within this hour and a half i want to compose a minute or whatever it is, or within this hour and a half, I want to orchestrate this full queue. Um, so I, I think, you know, if it's either way, you know, if you're supposed to compose 15 minutes in a week, then you try and divide that up and, and hopefully a little bit more, you know, say what is reasonable with that. Um, That's if right. you want to work seven days, then maybe you can do three days, three, three minutes a day, and then you have a little buffer there. Right. Um, if you get slower. But you should always account for, uh, you know, those unexpected moments, right? Exactly. <laughs> never, never budget for what you think it's going to be. Budget, budget more. Yeah. It's always going to take more than what you initially thought. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, okay, so let's talk about the difference between. This is such a. It's such an interesting subject because the the overall view of composing, orchestrating, and arranging can be oftentimes it's grouped into one, especially with players, right? Career musicians, man, I'm, I can play my instrument so good. I'm amazing at my instrument, but now I want to get into composing and arranging and orchestrating. But oftentimes it's all grouped into one little, you know, uh, 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 you know, bucket, if you will. But like you just said, it's not, there's different things and there can be negative stigma attached if you're one thing trying to cross over into the other and you haven't really successfully, I guess, quote unquote, either paid your dues or in somebody's eyes, you know, earned it. Yeah. I think there's also a lot of gray area between those three things. I mean, especially in the film world where, you know, people have composers work under them. And if none of them get credit as composers, then they're maybe arrangers, even though yes. maybe they compose the full music. So I think there's gray area there too. But in a traditional sense, I think of composer writes the music, um, orchestrator fleshes out their vision for a real orchestra, for or not even orchestra, real players, um, live musicians. And uh, arranging, I think, is a combination of the two probably. Usually you're orchestrating but in addition, you're creating new elements that the composer did not have there. But there's still a big structure that the composer had. I kind of, I don't know if that's a dictionary. No, that's, that's, actually, that's actually a very clear breakdown of it. Thank you. I think the listeners will definitely gain some insight. Now, that being said, like you, you, you prefaced, that's a very, in a traditional sense. Nowadays, 
with all of the technology and the plugins and the sound libraries, it's so much of it is done by one person. Yeah. All, like you said, all three jobs, those gray areas. It's like, I, I know for myself, even if I'm composing a cue, I end up doing that and even mixing as I'm working. Yeah. Right. Have you found that? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. If, if, if you're mixing it at the end, you're doing everything. It's yeah. put every, every job title. Yeah. Engineered by Nomad, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It, because if, if you're building it, as you're building it and creating it and fleshing it out, you want to hear it sound pleasing. You you don't want to have all the levels and volumes and panning and things be out of, you know, out of whack. Right. Exactly. So you're yeah. kind of tapering everything as you go. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have, have to have a decent knowledge of all the fields now just to be able to work, especially in the film music world. Um, I do not consider mixing one of my strengths, right. but you know, I can, I can do enough justice where, it sounds decent, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So with some of your film work, you know, Ant-Man, Lego movie, Trolls, and then your TV work like Empire. I mean, talk more about that and talk about working at the big studios on, on the big box, uh, you know, box office hits, so to speak. Yeah. So all those films that you mentioned were all, I, I was an orchestrator on them uh, with Tim Davies. Okay. And, um, it's, it's really just, you treat it like any other gig. Um, especially, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, Tim was the lead orchestrator on those. So I didn't have to deal with any of the politics part of it. I just get to, to work on the craft of it, which is, it's a joy. You know, you get basically the processes, the composer sends you the music and then you, you know, you're going to get it recorded by how many ever people, 60 to 90 musicians. And you just want to make sure those sessions go as well as possible because any mistake or any confusion costs the studio lots and lots of money. And so, yeah, just you make sure that everything will sound beautiful. That's right. And I, I also, I iterate this a lot on the show. I want listeners who don't work in the LA music scene or, you know, perhaps in a larger, uh, you know, scene like this to understand, to really understand what it's like to be in one of those sessions. It's, it's very stressful, especially if you're not trained to be there right like if if you're in over your head then it's going to be extremely stressful but if you have been preparing for this and you've you know and you really got all your ducks in a row and you've done your homework then it's not stressful it just becomes like you said it's the job it's what it is and, and the sessions are the best part i mean it's a joy right. to go there because the hard work is done you already made your decisions you know there were lots of decisions that go into every queue and and you live by those you know there's not many times you're like oh i hope this is gonna sound okay you know it's you're you you know that you'll be able to deal with whatever comes up um there's you, there's always changes there's never a session where you just play everything through and it's you know no changes perfect let's go on to the next queue there's always little changes but within reason um and it's just fun hearing it come to life you know um especially yeah both both ways as a composer and orchestrator I think it's different as a composer because you've been living with the music so much longer. Um, you maybe have been working on a movie for a year or six months or whatever it is. Orchestrators, we usually come in towards the end. So we've been living with that music for two weeks or a month and then we get to hear it. But composer, it's like, okay, I've been waiting a year for this. Let's hear what it sounds like. Right, right. Now, typically once you're done orchestrating and you have all of your elements in place musically, you know, and sonically, all the different sections within the orchestra, you send all of that off to a copyist, correct? Usually, uh, sometimes. Or do you? Like 
course. Sometimes we're everything, you know, okay. if it's a smaller right. gig, then we'll copy it ourselves. You know, it's important to have those skills, but yes, for the bigger films where there's um, a big uh, deadline where, okay, we're going to get all this music the night before we got to orchestrate it out, get it to the copy house. Um, and they have a team of people that can get it to the stands before 10 a.m. Um, whereas, yeah, it, it just takes a lot of people. I'm always grinning during this process because I love it so much. This is one of the things that really, you know, that I came out to LA for. So you can't see it, but I'm, I'm grinning ear to ear as I'm asking Jordan all these questions. And I just love hearing you talk about it and all the affirmations um, because this is the real life stuff that oftentimes you just don't learn in school, you know? Yeah. And people really need to hear exactly how it goes. So when, I love when you said you send it off to the copy house and they have teams that can get the stuff done before 10 a.m. the next morning. Uh, let's think about those teams and talk about the music nerdology that goes on there. I mean, <laughs> pretty intense, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It's like you're talking about people who can literally just start transcribing stuff out of thin air without an instrument in sight. And I'm sure you're the same way. Yeah, I mean, you know, so much is digital now that a copy, a copyist is very different than they were 40 years ago when everything had to be literally notated by pen and paper, pencil and paper. Right. Now, um, you know, it's much easier with the notation programs, but it's still a lot of work. It still takes time to format stuff, make sure there's no mistakes, make sure everything looks good for the players. And I'm sure your finale templates are pretty uh, tidy, huh? Yeah, I mean, they've been going through lots of uh, changes for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. Be sure to subscribe to the Career Musician podcast and like The Career Musician on all social platforms to stay up to date on news and topics that affect your music career. Being a career musician is more than just gigs and sessions. Are you a career musician? Find out on the Career Musician podcast, streaming everywhere. Um, now, do you have perfect pitch or relative? I have relative pitch. I do not have perfect pitch. The, I think those with perfect pitch, it's perhaps even a, a step easier. Would that, be, would that be fair to assume? Well, Tim and I were talking about this the other day, actually. Um, I'm not sure. I think relative, so um, relative pitch is you can, you can as, as long as you have a bass you know, note, you can tell everything relative to it. You can tell the harmony, you can tell the melody. Um, I think, uh, you know, ideally, yes. If you have perfect pitch and relative pitch, and you've honed that and you've worked on it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that will make it easy, easy to do it easier than me. But I have found that, you know, if you don't work on the theory part of it as much, if you have perfect pitch, but you're not, you know, you don't know about how chord progressions work or recognizing, oh, that song sounds like this song. Or intervals, yeah. Then, then it won't be as easy, you know? Right. If, I, if I hear something and I've been working on it, it's like, oh, that sounds like, here comes the sun. Boom, I know those chords. And the perfect pitch person is hearing, well, I hear E and G sharp, and a B, and then it goes to, I can hear these notes, F sharp, and you're like, no, you're taking too much time. Like, it's, yeah. it's the sun, you know? Um, so right. I think, um, it, yeah, if you if you work on it with perfect pitch, then you're, you're all set. But I, I feel like a lot of them might not think about the big picture as much. Um, Agreed, like they take it for granted, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, relative pitch is something that can be learned and worked on. Yeah. Yeah. And perfect pitch is something that it happens more naturally, you know? Yeah, I think, but you have to learn it by the time you're six or something like that. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so yeah, right, exactly. Well, yeah, I'm jealous of perfect pitch people. So. No, me too. <laughs>
All right, let's talk about the process uh, as an orchestrator, whether you're a lead orchestrator or, you know, second or third in, in the chain of command. Um, the relationship between the orchestrators and the composer. Uh, and I know it's different from composer to composer as to what you receive from them. But in a typical context today of, you know, again, a typical job with all of the digital assets and digital tools being utilized to their fullest extent, what do you receive from the composer in order to start orchestrating? Typically, it's the MIDI file that they compose from and either a stereo audio file, um, just their, their mix or mix and stems. And that's it. Okay. How in de how in depth is that MIDI file? Are they doing dynamic markings? Are they doing all the different you know tongings and fingerings for all the different? Yeah, so it, I mean, the MIDI file. Just I mean, it has controller data, so you can right. usually see. I mean, it depends on the composer too. Some some composers they're just they're not putting any you know uh, volume data or anything like that. It just it just looks flat and it sounds flat, and so. That that's actually much harder because then you're like, well, do they really want it flat or do they want me to add some shape to it? And and sometimes you don't know. Sometimes they like it. They're like, nope, we want it all really flat. The director likes this. They don't want shape. That makes it too emotional. And then sometimes they're like, no, please add the shape. I'm just going fast. And so it's important to talk with them and realize that. Um, but yeah, typically it's just the the MIDI data. And um, sometimes it's very fleshed out where they they put it in different sections meaning they separated violin one, violin two, viola, as they want it. I'd say that's a lot more rare. Um, usually it's it's like, here's strings. Yeah. And maybe they'll have a note, add woodwinds, or maybe, and so that's that's when you, your, your craft really comes into play more um, in terms of, okay, how can we divide this out? What should we add to make sure it's really the gestures that they're, they want? Because um, it might sound good in the sequencer, but it's our job as orchestrators to make sure that it's going to translate to the real world well. Translate to the page and to the real players. Right. Yeah. Right. How often do the conversations, uh, you know, transpire between you and the composers? Or is it more of like, hey, here's an email explaining what I did. I don't have time to talk to you because I'm writing on the I'm writing the next set of cues. Just go to, to go to town. You know? Yeah, it really depends on the composer. I think mostly it's go to town. And then if there's anything you should know, they'll put it in a comment, you know, either in a text box or whatever right. it is for you to, to look at. Um, I have had other relationships where it is like, hey, call me. I want to talk about this. Like, let me know what you did. And like, cool, that, you know, it's a little more collaborative. And, and sometimes it does border on more arranging. They're like, okay, I did a piano track. Turn it into a lot more than that. Um, and they'll send video and stuff like that. And it's orchestrating. But but a little more arranging. Also arranging, yeah. And is there is there a way to separate that uh, in the within the union rates? Do you guys get paid as an arranger and orchestrator separately, or how does that work? It, it's all orchestrator, yeah. Okay. Uh, and that rarely happens on a union gig. I, I think those are less for the the on the big big gigs, um, especially like not video games. It's it's been fully fleshed out because the the directors and producers really want to hear it. You know, right. Right. yeah. All right. Is there anything within that process that you've had an aha moment where you're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe it!" Now it all makes sense. Again, coming from school and then coming back into the LA scene and doing it for real. Were there moments where you're just like, "Oh yeah, 
Now it's clicking. I, I think there's aha moments in different ways. I think from a business standpoint, there's aha moments of like, oh, wow, I never realized that connection would lead to a gig like this. Mm-hmm. Um, where, oh my God, like really this, this guy that, you know, I drank, you know, beer with in college, like he just gave me this big gig or whatever, whatever it is yeah, yeah. like that. Um, and then there's, um, I, and then there's just aha moments of learning your craft of, of orchestration. There's that's constant. Um, especially when I was starting out, you know, um, all the stuff that they teach you in college, it, it doesn't necessarily translate to what is now the, the default, what is now the norm in terms of, um, studio orchestras. Right. So, but what, um, they, you know, or, or just trying something that, oh man, this sounds so good in the sequencer. And then you try it in the real life. You're like, well, that, that didn't sound as good. Or, um, you know, learning that brass players can't make leaps like pianists, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that, which is just all about learning your craft. So true. So true. Um, speaking of that, do you, which, which set of, of, you know, uh, software do you prefer? Which DAW, which uh, plugins, you know, libraries, things like that? Or is it just kind of all over the map? It's kind of all over the map. I'm, uh, I use Digital Performer and uh, Pro Tools um, for, for my DAWs. And I record mainly into Pro Tools when I'm recording piano. Right. Um, and then samples is everything. Um, every, everything everyone has, yeah. Spitfire and uh cinematic studio series and uh uh let's see lots of i have like all the pianos you know all the The atmosphere and keyscape and all those things yeah so i like sony score have you used them the orchestra uh i don't think so oh it's pretty cool they're called sony score and they have these really cool orchestra uh plugins where or instruments where they give you the different sections but then they also give you the whole orchestra which you know east east west has all of them have that you know but but for somebody like me who cheats when it comes to orchestrating (laughs) it comes in handy you know that's great yeah it makes sense for you not to use it because that's what you do (laughs) so yeah, man, I love that. Okay, so I, I wanted to get all that out of the way because it's so important, and I feel like you know our listeners really benefit from hearing firsthand experience. Once again, somebody like yourself, Jordan, you know, uh, you know, everybody listening, he's been on the front lines for many years now, in the big studios, in the big sessions, talking about like you said, the politics of it, the crazy deadlines, getting things done, you know. So thank you for sharing that because it definitely you know, helps shed light. Now, I want to talk about the other side because apparently uh, Downbeat has just, you know, like did a feature on you and you're just crushing it on the jazz side with your own compositions and album. And talk about that, man. Tell us. Yeah, so I, uh, thanks for asking. I, um, I released my debut album last year. It's called Beyond Images. And um, the goal was just to have... Um, a bunch of compositions and music that felt like my like a true artistic statement. I felt like, you know, when you're when you're doing film scoring or orchestrating, it's there's there's always something else that's dictating what you can write, um, whether it's the video or whether it's the composer. Um, and so I wanted to have a, a project that was like, okay, this is this is where my sensibilities lie, and basically it's just a calling card. Um, basically, anybody can check me out. Like, oh, who's this Jordan Siegel guy? They can go to Spotify and they can listen to uh to the music that i like to write to and they can kind of hear everything in there i hope i hope that's the goal again um but they can hear me play piano they can hear 
the orchestrational side of me, and then they're all original compositions. And the, um, uh, in addition, the concept was that every song was dedicated to a great film composer. Mm. So it's kind of combining all the worlds. It's not just, okay, here's my piano album. It's like, okay, well, I, I do feel like this is all part of what makes me uh, an artist. So um, there's a song from Bernard Herrmann. There's a song for John Williams. There's a song for Thomas Newman, Randy Newman, basically all my favorite film composers. And they're, they're meant to uh, be an ode to them, but not necessarily emulate them. Just kind of filtered through a jazz voice. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Right. I love that. And I love the play on words beyond images, being that you work in the in the film and TV scoring, you know. That's yeah, you great. Got it. <laughs> now, now talk about the the experience with Downbeat because Downbeat is one of the most prestigious jazz publications there are. Period. I mean, it's it's the one, man. They've been around for you know they they, they have stood the test of time, and all of the legendary cats that we look up to as you know fans of jazz, Downbeat you know usually brings them to light. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, they. Um... Uh, a month after I released the album, it was selected as one of their editor picks of the month. And so they wrote a nice little article about it. And uh, yeah, I was honored, honored to be there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's very cool. I like, you Thank know, you. for me, it's, it's just as impressive to have that as it is to have your, you know, extensive resume in the other side of the industry. Uh, talk about splitting up your life because it's so funny because i i asked jeremy this i talked to many other people of course tim just a lot of people on the podcast because i'm of the same you know mindset where yes we do a lot of this work to earn money to for our career but then we have to have a portion of it that we save for ourselves you know i i think if we and i hate to say it like this but there was a while i spent some time on the road and I felt like I was giving away my talent to all the people I was working for. But when I came home, I had no nothing left for myself, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's so important that people are starting to realize, no, you know what? I have to do my passion project. Yeah. How yeah, do, I, how I do think, you arrive at that? Yeah. I mean, work-life balance is, is really important. I'm... I'm a big fan of enjoying your life, as stupid as that sounds. Mm -hmm. I, I see it so much in our industry of just people working 20 hours a day and, you know, no weekends. And then you just see them like, why are you doing that? What's, I mean, I know some people think that's the only option. Like, well, I want to be a big composer. So I have to internship and do an internship and work 20 hours a week. But I, I'm a big fan of, um, if you want to write something meaningful and do something meaningful with your music, then you've got to, have some joy in your life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I like to, 
you know, eat good food. And in LA, we're very lucky. We have good food everywhere. Um, and just, uh, I mean, I love movies too. So I love watching movies and TV shows and, and just taking a break from, and not everything needs to be music 24 seven. I, I think it's, it's a healthier lifestyle. I agree with that. I agree with that. What are some of your favorite pastimes? Um, I like playing ping pong. Oh, cool. <laughs> my house. Um, I love my, my dog. So I like taking them for little walks and, uh, and, and I travel. I, I at least I, I used to when we, we could travel easier. Right. Um, yeah, the, the year before, uh, let's see, 2019, I went to Vietnam and Japan and, um, I think I went to Tulum and yeah, it was, it was great. Wow. Now, were you doing that just for fun? Just for holiday? For yeah, just for fun. Were you flying solo? Uh, no, with my wife. Okay, cool. Yeah. That must have been awesome. Very yeah. cool. All right. So all of this being said, and I like to ask everybody this because it varies. How do you define success? I think, I think if you enjoy what you do and you're able to live comfortably and you don't have to worry too much, you know, there's always going to be stress. There's always going to be worry. But within reason, I think if you if you love what you do and you're, yeah, living comfortably, financially, um, that doesn't mean you're you're rich, but you can survive and not not worry about putting food on the table and feel not feel that stress as much. Um, I, to me, that's success. Yeah, mainly loving what you do, and yeah, I I, I think um, then there's there's different um, grades of it maybe, but yeah, that, yeah. That's for me. No, it's great. I, I I dig that totally. And what would you tell somebody? Let's say uh, some younger musicians out there who want to come to LA to quote unquote make it, <laughs> whether that be as a player or uh, you know as in the film and TV industry. What are you going to tell them? I think it's you know all the things I was talking about earlier. Be responsible. Be professional. Um, and and know what you're passionate about. Um, know what you can, what service you can genuinely provide for somebody else. How can you help someone rather than what can you take from someone? Mm. So if you want to, if you want to work in whatever field, whether you're a musician or a composer, like, Hey, I'm really passionate about this type of music. Um, I'm good at it. You know, um, how can I help you genuinely, not, not, uh, insincerely. And I, I think it might take some time, but, but if you're talented and you're nice, then you'll be successful. I mean, there's very, I, I can't think of really anybody that I know that's like, man, that guy's so successful. He's so nice and he doesn't have any work. You know, I was like, no, if you're really, if you're really good at what you do and you're really nice, then you're going to be okay. That's true, man. Very true. Well said, my friend. Okay. Speaking of uh, good food, what are some of your favorite restaurants here in LA? Oh, good food. Um, I love salsa and beer, which is uh, a, a Mexican restaurant near me. Um, yeah. Let's see. I love good sushi, but I don't know. I don't have a current spot right now. There's so many places for a good sushi. I, I mean, I love good Thai food. I don't know. It's hard. Okay. To, you have a broad palate. Yes. I mean, I love everything. Like yeah. Vietnamese food. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, that's I awesome, know. man. Just just like your musical taste. It's, I love it. I mean, that's that's musicians. That's how we are, you know? Exactly. You know, and don't tempt us with, with, a, with a good meal because we're always going to say yes. So, yeah. <laughs> In fact, we'll play for free oftentimes if there's a good meal, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
I used to do a, a gig at a sushi restaurant. They used to feed us in sushi, and uh, and they they would pay us, but it was mainly for the sushi that I did the gig for so long. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Cool. Where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can check out my Spotify. Um, you can check out uh, if you want to hear me. You can check out the Peanuts, uh, all the Peanuts Apple TV shows. I, I play all the piano for those. Dude, okay, I, I'm sorry. I didn't even mean to gloss over that. You got to talk about that. Thank you. So, yeah, so uh, that's been, I mean, maybe the most fun gig I've had over the past few years. Um, it, I do it uh, maybe once or twice a month. It's been happening for probably two or three years now. Of Yeah, I get to play piano for all the, the new Snoopy shows, and there's all these Apple TV Peanuts projects. And so Jeff Morrow's the composer. He's great. He's awesome to work with. And uh, luckily he likes my piano playing, so I get to keep doing it. And so we just, we did a documentary a few months ago that just came out. Uh, I think it's called, what's it called? Um, Who Are You, Charlie Brown? It's about the I maker. Just, you know, I just saw the trailer last night. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you heard, so then you heard me playing. You did that. That's awesome. That was, yeah, that was me. Um, and so on that one, so for the Snoopy show, which is, is the main Apple TV show, it's all original music. It's all Jeff's music. And I, but there's a lot of improvising. It's a lot of fun. But for this documentary, um, we got to re-record the, the Vince Guaraldi pieces. Mm. So uh, we re-recorded uh, Linus and Lucy, the famous one, the main theme, and also skating, which was, which was awesome. I mean, it's great. It's like, as a jazz piano movie TV guy, that's like the dream, you know? So, it is the dream. Uh, and, and to fill those footsteps of Vince Guaraldi, man, come on. Yeah, so that, that, that's oh. been a lot of fun. That's awesome. So when you're when you're tracking with Jeff Morrow for that, does he you have you have like a, a score to follow a chart, and then does he have open solo sections just like on any other jazz uh, arrangement? Yeah, it's uh, it's actually been an interesting process. So now that we've been working together for for three years, the the workflow has changed a little bit um, depending on the project too. So at first, yeah, I mean it would be. Here's the, you know, there's a, a lot of that's just written out. Um, but within, re, you know, sometimes there'll be chord symbols. So he's like, hey, if you want to revoice anything, you can do that. And then other times there'll just be, you know, chord symbols for two minutes or a minute or 20 seconds here. It's like, hey, um, you know, play something. And then usually I'll ask, well, what's going on? And then the picture will be there. And I'll say, oh, Woodstock is flying around with little birdie friends and play something happy and cool. And so, cool. So you get to kind of put on the film composer and piano thing, you know, like, um, and we can speak, uh, and he's a jazzer as well. So we can speak a similar language of, Hey, like this is more of a Oscar Peterson vibe, or, Hey, this is more of a Thelonious Monk vibe. And then I'll know exactly like, okay, that's more like this versus that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Man, you, and bro, you have to have some serious chops to fill those, uh, to fill those references, man. I, I, I work on it. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's hard. You do, you do, man. You do. You crush it. Thank you absolutely that's so cool all right well yeah so that's where everybody can hear you right now like you said they can also hear your album beyond images and that's siegel s-e-i-g-e-l jordan siegel uh dot com and then of course the ig is just jordan siegel music and then youtube same and so forth so yeah look them up man you're not gonna be sorry that you checked jordan's music out you are a beast. You're crushing it, bro. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the things here with the career musician, our our whole mission 
is to, you know, not only inspire musicians that want to pursue their dreams, but help them to figure out how to create a sustainable career, right? You know, here's the, here are the goods. Here's the, the keys to the, to success so far for creating a sustainable career. And like you said, sometimes it just takes a little bit of everything, but find your passions. I really like that. So, you know, if you have three passions, hone in, stick to it, be a nice person and uh, voila. Exactly. There you have it, everybody. Jordan Siegel. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, brother. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.